0: And now, coming to you from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan and Gary K. Wolf on episode 640, Shenanigans of the Coot Street Podcast. Hello, Gary.
1: Hello, and welcome to 2024. 20, uh, this is our first, <gasps> uh, first podcast of 2024, the year in which the movie version of a boy and his dog is supposed to take place. I know. I don't feel a day over 2023. I don't either. Uh, I, I, I think we should. I turned sixty There's, since I saw you last. It's been absolutely. You t- what? My goodness. Yes, you have. I feel a million years old. And also, well, since we were away, something
0: else happened. Something non shenaniganical Though will come to shenanigans.
1: <laughs> You got married. Congratulations. Oh yes, I did. We can we can actually uh, uh, mention that on the podcast now. Dale Weatherwax Haynes, who's been living with me for the last eight years, and I went to City Hall and got married and uh, have been waiting until we could tell the family in a big gathering, which we did tonight. So, so you knew this, a few other people knew this, but yes. thank you for the congratulations. Congratulations. She made an honest person of you. Oh. Well, oh, that's, going to do that's, a that's, that's a stretch. That's a
0: stretch. Yeah. They're going to do their best. Dell's <laughs> going to do their best to make an honest person. Of you. But congratulations. I'm delighted. It's been a time. I mean, you know, the year changed um, and all kinds of things happened since we've been gone, and we're also still trying to nut out the new year. How have you been? Obviously, you've been
1: married. What else? Um, apart from that, it's been, an, well, I will tell you what it's been like in Chicago. We had 80 hours, 80, about 80 some consecutive hours of below zero temperature, which Ugh. for you, civilized, it it's what, it 20, 25 below uh, Celsius. So, so so basically, we stayed indoors for a long time. Today was the first day we've gotten our car out in over a week. It's been over a month before the temperature went above freezing. So it's, it's been a good time to get a lot of reading done. And as a result, I haven't got a lot of reading done.
0: <laughs> well, that always
1: follows. I can tell you
0: that it's been the exact opposite here. I mean, if I'm you've sure. been down below zero down here, we've been up there and we've had heat waves and humidity and fires and 44 degree temperatures and all this kind of stuff. And it's been been pretty unpleasant at times. But... It's interesting that they... The, 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 finish your thought. But we, we try to be optimistic in the face of it all, Gary. And like you,
1: faced with the time to read, I watch some TV. I watch some TV too. And uh, but, but, but the odd thing is I'm thinking that we're in opposite climates and yet the weather keeps us indoors in the same way. In other words, you don't dare go out and... Uh, only mad dog, dogs and Englishmen, which I understand what colonized Australia in the first place. Um, Thank you very much. And go out in the noonday sun. And here in Chicago, it's it's not been snowy, but at any rate. So I've been thinking about rereading things as you do in the holiday season. I don't know if you do this, but uh, I haven't done it lately. A lot of people will go back and read Dickens' stories, not necessarily A, a Christmas Carol, or one of the things I've done, and we've done a little bit of it here. So I'll go back and read M.R. James ghost stories or I'll read stuff that uh, uh, somehow associates uh, with, with with childhood reading and that sort of thing. So, so the question that comes up is, um, are there any classic Christmas or New Year's or winter science fiction stories? And I don't mean the left hand of darkness because it takes place on. A, I, I don't mean really cold novels. I mean, novels. Stories that you associate with certain times of year, certain holidays, and so forth. I don't I know, Connie, Connie, I mean,
0: doesn't really re- re- yeah, Connie Evers did a book for the Library of America. You're right, right? Um, and she's published probably like, collections of her own Christmas stories. So at least one, yeah, because she used to do do a story um, every year for mm-hmm. for SMLs, right. I don't right. know that, that that's continuing, but that certainly... And so I wrote some terrific stories. But it's never something that I've particularly paid a lot of attention to in terms of my own reading. Uh, it, you know, sort of, I haven't looked for science fiction to provide those kind of um, occasions, I guess. But, I mean, various people over time have. I'm surprised that, I mean, Nalo Hopkins has, has written a, a Christmas story. Gene Wolfe wrote a couple. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it
1: happens. Well, it's not just uh, specifically Christmas stories, or for that matter, New Year's stories, because there are New Year's celebrations in a lot of science fiction novels. I guess what I'm coming back to is that science fiction, by its nature, is not comfort reading. One one doesn't go to it, and this is one of the things that I wonder about when I look at people my age, some of whom are good friends, rereading favorite stories from the 50s and 60s. Let's go back and take another look at Stranger in a Strange Land and see if it holds up. One of the novels which you and I were talking about before this 50 years ago, uh, The Mode in God's Eye, major, major book at the time. Um, The only reason I can see for rereading those are three. One is you're writing a history of science fiction and you need to check it out. Two is Mm -hmm. you have very fond memories of them and you want to uh, rekindle those memories. Or C, you were younger and more naive and you want to feel young and naive again by rereading the stuff that impressed you. I tend to be somebody who is very hesitant to go back and reread favorite books of childhood or young adult because things that are wrong with them that I didn't see 40 or 50 years ago leap off the page and strangle me now.
0: Oh, it's completely true. I mean, first of all, you have what the the, the great and wonderful Joe Walton describes as the suck fairy, where just Mm -hmm. simply... In many ways, first of all, you are a less sophisticated reader at 13 than you are at 50 or something. So that's a real thing. And then you're right. I mean, we've been talking about various books just earlier before this podcast, and I've been looking at them in other discussions, books that came out 50 years ago, where you look and go, there were considerations that were absolutely fine 50 years ago or aspects of stories that were Mm -hmm. fine 50 years ago that you would question now, you know. Uh, back in the mid-1970s, it was perfectly okay to write a space opera that talked of empire and colonization without really analyzing the impact and ramifications of that for the people it was, that it right. was impacting. Now, you would not consider anyone writing such a book to have done a diligent or responsible job if they didn't at least pay some attention to that. You know? That would be quite unacceptable, I think, for all sorts of reasons.
1: Colonialism? So, yeah you know, colonialism was not questioned it was frequently celebrated
0: there was in the particularly in the science fiction of the first half of the 20th century a real underpinning of manifest destiny and everything that came with it and it was largely unquestioned you're completely right and that was just how that was now you look back on it at best it makes you uncomfortable and mm. at worst it's much more uh, because quite often it's very to be polite clumsily handled um and yeah, it, make, it it leaves you wondering. You think, geez, I, I wouldn't have that. And you know, when it comes back to a question that I've long been interested in these last couple of decades, which is, as the science fiction field advances and changes, as we expand the perspectives of people who are involved, as we interrogate and question the underpinnings of things, what at the end of it do you end up with? What 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 do you come out the other side of that process with? How does the core of science fiction change ongoing because i believe it does i think it's part of its evolutionary path Mm -hmm. and we're still answering that question but this is all part of it it's like if you look at a and space opera is a a convenient thing to look at because it is at the core of the field the space adventure Mm -hmm. so you can look at a space adventure in from 1915 25 35 45 55 65 75 85 and have these regular soundings through time of attitudes and whatever else in books that were considered prominent and lauded at the time you know and obviously it's a little hard to know exactly because not everything's documented so you're left kind of going well I don't exactly know you know, did people feel you know sort of the the most high profile space opera of 1955 was questionable. Did they look at you know the Lensman's book of 1915 or whatever it was mm-hmm. and go, mm, don't know. They probably didn't.
1: But- I don't think so. I I, I think what I, I think you're right. I think people over time change the criteria by which they look at past science fiction. I think people. I, I because I remember uh, hearing this. I'm I'm obviously. Not old enough to remember reading Doc Smith in the original, or for that matter, I, I did. I did go back and read some Edmund Hamilton in the pulp magazine. Um, and one of the things that uh, concerned people in the fifties and sixties and seventies was how badly written and badly plotted and stereotypically uh, characterized these these things were. In other words, the question wasn't. Uh, one of, is is, is this idea of gigantic uh, star smashers, well, one of the titles was Star Smashers of the Galaxy Rangers, for heaven's sake. Oh, unless that was a Harry Harrison. Actually, that was a Harry Harrison parody. The thing is, Harrison was parodying things from a distinctly political left-wing point of view, which was his attitude. So he was questioning colonialism and weaponization of space in a way that most people weren't. Uh, But most of the responses if you read the histories of science fiction by brian aldous or by uh i don't know um, donald walheim their main complaint was that these were badly written stories not that they were badly conceived stories not that these were bad ideas that were being celebrated but they just didn't do a good enough job with them and frankly doc smith was not a very good writer Uh, so so at that point But, but
0: he was not unaware though i mean think about this you go back and you look at Skylark of space the first Skylark book, mm. right he brought in a, a a woman to co-write the book with him Which, so that he would get more you know more plausible female viewpoints in the book so there were considerations at play somewhere he, to, to he, was, aware,
1: that. he was aware of his weaknesses but his but but hugo Gernsback apparently wasn't uh, because hugo Gernsback's attitude toward women in his own fiction was was that of the classic uh please explain to me, father, the professor, everything about science because I don't know anything because I'm simply a girl. In other words, what I'm saying is that the criticism of earlier science fiction was once technical and literary criticism, not that they're doing the wrong thing, but that they're doing it badly. Now Mm. we're beginning to say, are some of these assumptions behind that fiction? It's not just the technical quality of the fiction, it's the assumptions behind the fiction itself, that super weapons may be a good thing. That colonizing other worlds, subjugating alien races, going to war with alien races—the inevitability of of war with aliens. One of the things that uh, is interesting when we're looking at things from 50 years ago was some of the anthologies. There were the "There Will Be War" anthologies. They aren't quite 50 years ago. There was an anthology uh, put together by Joe Haldeman, not quite 50 years ago, called "Study War No More," in which he was putting together stories that question the inevitability of future war, which was a given in science fiction discussions up until that time. Yeah. The question was not whether war is going to happen. The question is how well could, you can write about it um, or how convincingly you can write
0: about it. It's also probably interesting to think about the kind of things we write about that, or that get written about that we're enthusiastic enough about that mm. we'll overlook te- technical failings for. In other words, there have been poorly written, frankly, works that were received very warmly because of what they talked about, maybe a particular kind of science adventure or whatever else. Mm. And I wonder if the kind of things that were well, the place where we'll overlook one has changed. You know, like in 2023-4, maybe the points where you'll overlook technical failings because you like the conversation or what they're talking about mm-hmm. is a different thing than it was once upon a time.
1: That's an interesting question because um, I'm, uh, I'm not thinking necessarily of poorly written st- well, I am thinking of some poorly written. There are stories that became classics, I think, because they had uh, ideas that appealed to a certain readership at a certain time. And I'm thinking specifically, I'm trying to think back now on a couple of stories that appeared in the 30s and 40s. Well, one is one of the most egregiously, I think, sexist stories in the history of science fiction, which is also not particularly well written, which is Lester Del Rey's Helen O'Loy, um, uh-huh. which was the idea that uh, a robot could fall in love with you was kind of an interesting idea. And it probably yes. was a very appealing idea to the adolescent boys reading those magazines and, uh, at the time. Uh, but the fact is, it was a kind of by the numbers romance. It was, if, if you, if you put that in a romance magazine, people would have said, it's nothing but cliches. Um, yeah. but at the same time, um, or, or only a few years after that, C.L. Moore was writing, uh, stories. And I'm, I'm blanking on the title of the one classic story of hers, uh, that, um, that dealt with a female robot uh, who's a, who's a, who's a dancer. It, It was a much more enlightened story, much better written at the same time. So my argument would be, I think you're right, there are badly written stories that became iconic in one way or another, but there are stories from the same period dealing with the same issues that could be well-written and more sophisticated at the same time.
0: Very true. Very true, my friend.
1: There's no woman born, uh, which is...
0: And some of this is why... I like the idea, and over the years, you and I, one or other of us have proposed all kinds of things that we don't actually get around to doing. Mm. So I don't know if we'll do this, but I like the idea of having, a, and it's an arbitrary thing, but I like the idea of having a conversation about a series of 50-year-old books, books that came yes. out in 1974, to see whether they still talk to us, whether they, why they spoke to us at the time maybe, and where possible to talk to. The creators, while they still exist, while they're still mm-hmm. around, you know. Because honestly, anybody who was making, you know, the Hugo ballot in 1975 probably needs to be
1: talked to sooner rather than later. I think that's a fair call. I think that's probably well. It's obviously the case, and I think also 50 and, years is is not entirely an arbitrary number. We could have done this last year, but one of the things that does strike me when you look at the history of science fiction and how much of it has happened in the last 50 years, because there are clearly novels from 50 years ago that are still being read and discussed today. Joe Haldeman's Forever War is one, Le Guin's The Dispossessed is another. But when you think of 50 years ago being 1974 and then think, well, what was 50 years before 1974? Then you're talking about things like Rossum's Universal Robots. You're talking about mid-career or late-career H.G. Wells novels. You're talking about Olaf Stapleton. So the, the 50 years looking at, at uh, from a current perspective, the 50 years between 1924 and 1974 seem to be the entire invention of modern science fiction. Yes. And 74 to here to here seems to be the revision and rethinking and remodeling and reinvention of science fiction. But except for uh, ideas of cyberspace and the metaverse, uh, ideas that are fairly regularly regularly credited to Gibson or Neal or sure. Stephenson, how many completely new ideas compared to the... Ni- Compared to the previous 50 years, how many completely new science fiction ideas have become standard tropes of the genre since 1974?
0: It's an interesting question to ask. And are we actually still
1: interested in new ideas in the field? Um, That's a cynical-sounding question if I ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) It's (laughs) worth asking. Well, It's it's, it's worth noting that some of the forms that were invented – In that preceding 50 years let's take one because i just read a story uh, a forthcoming novella which fits into this very neatly the generation starship story started in the early 30s it started in uh, the pulp magazines Uh, there were stories as early as 1933 35 and of course the classic is uh, became heinlein's universe which i think was 1940 maybe 1939 or 40. um and people have continued to write that story over in various ways ever since. It's 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 a, it's a it's a appealing story for a number of reasons. One, as a science fiction idea, it's really kind of cool. We can you know uh, spend years and years uh, in in space. It solves a, a, a classic science fiction problem of faster than light travel. It gives you a chance to write a microcosmic society in which you can do anything you want to with this enclosed yeah. environment. You can write ecological issues. You can write really bad romance stories like that movie a couple of years ago called Passage. But you can also do interesting things with it. So it's not just a matter of a bunch of people on a ship that don't know they're on a ship, but it could be something that deals with, um, uh, with cultural clashes. There's a Harry Harrison version of it in which there are two cultures, one of which I think is a Puritan culture and the other is an Aztec culture. And they're kept separate. And Harrison is making elaborate arguments about the nature of how society should be organized. And then River Solomon comes along with an unkindness of ghosts in which you have a lot of issues of racism and uh, and, and, and gender politics and uh, slavery, uh, making a, a very contemporary thing out of it. The one that's forthcoming is one that's coming out in April is the Sophia Samatar thing called the... the, cha- the the hate, the horizon, the horizon, the chain, and the okay. I'll have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> it's, anyway, and she's dealing with educational problems, educational issues with with class distinctions, with slavery, and that sort of thing. The the practice, the horizon, and the chain. I think in that. That's area. correct. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, so she's taken this idea, which was uh, at least a few years old, even on Heinlein, and finding a new use for it. So in other words, some of these classic science fiction ideas um, can be reinvented uh, and and, and they're endlessly useful. I mean, every genre has that sort of thing. I mean, mysteries have locked room murder mysteries. They have police procedurals. They have, uh, you know, uh, first person uh, trick stories. So so to some extent, those ideas continually get re-explored. Cyberspace. I don't know. I really don't know if the idea of living in a VR world is appealing anymore. There were a number of very good stories um, from decades ago.
0: Out of cyberpunk comes is who was more influential? And actually, I think William Gibson was staggeringly influential on day-to-day life. Right. But Bill Gibson or Neil Stevenson? Is the phone we carry, the iPad we deal with, whatever else, is that more of a Gibsonian or a Stevensonian kind of a thing? Somewhere in there, the world we live in was sketched and was very, very, very well detailed. So
1: you know, I'm not sure. I think it's been a huge thing. It's been a huge thing, but you've, it's, it's odd that you should mention the phones, since Gibson himself has talked about the one thing he didn't think of in Neuromancer was something like cell phones.
0: But Neil Stevenson so,
1: did. Neil Stevenson did, um, and. There's uh, a, a, another thing which Neal Stevenson, but when we're talking about Neal Stevenson in this context, we're essentially talking about Snow Crash. And Snow no, Crash. No, next, no, no, talk about the Diamond Age. Well, the Diamond Age, that's true as well. But Snow Crash was the one that made the splash. And Snow Crash was the novel that I'm pretty sure introduced the term metaverse. Uh, which Snow is Crash spl-
0: made a splash, but the yeah. Diamond Age arguably, arguably had the actual ideas.
1: Well, it was also a better novel. Uh, Sure. But it, it, to be honest, it wasn't as funny as, as Snow Crash was. But it was it was a more well-structured novel. It had real. It, you're right. It was a more sophisticated novel. But it didn't have. I'm I'm arguing it didn't have the general impact outside the science fiction field that Snow Crash did, or for that matter, that Neuromancer.
0: Well, I think the truth is that well, sorry, the truth is a terrible way to put it. What I think is this: I think that the influence of Neuromancer and of the Diamond Age, in a sense, is um, similar. It's never been about in, in how they ex- impacted the community at large. Much as you know, sort of when the Sex Pistols played their first show, you know, in, in the UK, it apparently mm-hmm. spawned a thousand bands. Right. Neuromancer impacts a thousand science fiction and science geeks who go off and build the things because they want to be able to get into cyberspace. Right. Um, the Diamond Age Brings your handhelds and whatever else because people think see it and they think it's cool and they want to have it. You know, that's not about being, you know, the, pe- the people it influenced went on and influenced everybody else as opposed to it itself being.
1: The- was it Gibson who coined the term cool hunter or did somebody coin it about him?
0: I'm not even gonna guess, I don't recall.
1: But I mean, the, I but the idea, to me that he did. well, the um, uh, the big end novels, uh, yeah, really deal with characters who are literally cool hunters. They're characters who are, I think, identified with by so many science fiction readers because they are exactly that. They're looking for the next new thing. Um, and Malcolm and Gladwell he, and the New Yorker. Really? Yeah. Coined cool hunter. That's interesting. Yeah. So, oh,
0: wow. so say is the internet when you search
1: on it. Well, uh, but the, the the other thing, which I think is interesting about both Stevenson and, um, and, and, and um, Gibson, Gibson is that they were, they were not, they were not simply thinking up new gadgets. One of the things that no. I think does represent the maturity of science fiction during the last 50 years, uh, and, and a little earlier than that even, I guess you have to go back earlier, for answer, But is that the idea of a new kind of device, uh, a device which, uh, I don't know, moves you back in time by two minutes, or a device which makes you and the, the, the traditional way of science fiction dealing with those isn't this clever? Let's see how we can make a little comical thing Mm -hmm. out of this. Let's see what we can do with robots. But the idea of looking at the societal impact of robots was naive at best in earlier science. And what I think what Gibson really pioneered and which I think uh, Stevenson picked up on, and a lot of other people have picked up on this as well. I'm not just uh, talking about them. The early cyberpunk people were actually saying, how is uh, how are these inventions going to alter people's behavior over generations? Not just not just having a new device, but what happens when you're uh, obsessively uh, spending 10 or 17 hours a day looking at screens? I'm not sure anybody really thought of that. Uh, you the, the the idea you know the the old cliche about science fiction is that uh, any technologist back in 1905 would have figured out. Uh, that the automobile was going to be a big thing, but only a science fiction writer would think about traffic jam or, yeah. or, or, yeah. or auto insurance and that sort of thing. Um, so the idea of the handheld phone, which became popularized, interestingly enough, the the idea of your video phone with you at all times, as far as I could tell, was not ever popularized in science fiction stories. It was popularized by Dick, Dick Tracy comic strip. The Dick yeah, the well cartoons. Yeah. We're all living in the Jetsons' world, not in Robert Heinlein's. Exactly. So, the, so these ideas become generally uh, dissipated in the culture, not necessarily by science fiction writers or science fiction readers, uh, but by other people. But even then, the idea that people would suddenly, that we would have a sudden increase in pedestrian accidents because of people wandering into the street while staring at their phone is something you would think science fiction writers might have thought of, and maybe somebody did. I don't know. Maybe somebody back in the 70s. But the point (laughs) is, that's the difference between simply imagining a new invention and imagining how society is changed by that invention. All of which is prompted from the idea of
0: maybe talking about 50-year-old works while we still are interested in doing so. I've looked at some of the books we could talk about, some of the people Mm -hmm. that we might get in touch with whilst we still can. I certainly know that my choice for the January book would have been if we can get ourselves together, which we probably get would have been uh Jack Dan's landmark anthology wandering stars, which was a January, 1974 book. Mm-hmm. So would fit neatly into our 50 year anniversary. If we were going to do that, but we'd have, you know, the dispossessed, the forever war *Flow my tears. The policeman said there are all possibilities. Um, there are, there are some people around. I mean, I was just in touch with uh, Robert Silverberg, who just celebrated um, his 89th birthday. Happy birthday to Happy birthday to Bob. And who won the Hugo in 1975 for his novella Born with the Dead, which mm-hmm. you'll recall was quite a good story, is my recollection. Yes. But the runners-up, interestingly, are also around because Norman Spinrad uh, – uh, came in with riding the torch which you may also recall
1: mm-hmm. quite a
0: good story and that game of thrones chap at the very oh, at the beginning the of his song. career was a song for a liar yeah mm-hmm. so there's lots to talk about in fact this whole year we have to get our act together last year we promised everybody
1: 26 episodes and we just did not do that at all so we owe people episodes gary People are clamoring for them. I'm getting insulting. It's it's it's, it's something we should probably do, uh, and it's something that we, we we certainly can do. But I think the idea of picking out a book a month, see see how people think about it. or a story, because there are classic stories. You mentioned uh, the 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 Silverberg story for you that have survived for fifty years, and, and and other books that may or may not have survived. One of the books that you know we were talking about, uh, and the question is, what do you mean survived? But the big news in in 1974 was the mode in God's Eye, and yeah. I don't know if it's being read these days at all. But when I by big news I meant, as as you pointed out, it had blurbs from people like Herbert and Heinlein, and um, it was Sturgeon. Given, Sturgeon. It was given a big uh, promotional budget. I I think it did make the New York Times bestseller list. Um, It was going to be a breakout book for science fiction. Um, And Larry Niven is is still with us and has written uh, a a number of classic works, which I know are still under discussion. People still love Ringworld, for example. Now, Ringworld is a kind of interesting, classic, hard SF idea because it's a huge concept. It's fun to play with. It's the kind of thing that other writers have picked up on and expanded on uh, with Dyson Spheres and orbitsville and that sort of thing. So I know that... Ringworld and its follow-ups are still being discussed. I'm not sure the same thing is true of The Mode in God's Eye, which at the time was supposed to be the definitive alien contact novel.
0: I think it's fair to say that The Moat in God's Eye, as far as I can tell, is not being discussed much in the critical circles in which you and I tend to move. I don't know what the world at large's view of it is at the moment, and I'm curious to take that look. Certainly when I was, I mean, it came out, I mean, haha. It came out, Gary, when I was 12. And I probably read it when I was 13 or 14. And my copy, which I still have, is sufficiently creased as to tell me that I read it a few times because when I was 13 or 14 and I bought a book, it went onto my bookshelf and I read those books over and over because there weren't a lot of science fiction books around. Um, But also, uh, discussing this over this weekend, I realize I remember very few details of the book at all. And I don't know whether... 2024 May would find the book engaging, interesting, readable. And so I'm kind of curious to, 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 to do that because I think, I think looking at these books that, that you haven't looked at, that I haven't looked at a long time, always kind of refreshes my perspective. And when I was trying to skip through the years, you know, when I looked at sort of the 75, 85, 95 mm-hmm. winners, you know, there are books that mostly I've never, that I remember, sure, but that I haven't been back and looked at. I mean, uh, 85. The 85 Locus Award winner was The Integral Trees, right? Larry uh, Niven. Now, I don't know if you read The Integral Trees. I think I I you did. did. Yeah. But, you know, it's not, I mean, it had a great uh, Michael Whalen cover, but not the most you know, major of books in retrospect, really. And when you look down the top five or so Demon by John Varley, Hitchy Rendezvous by Fred Pohl, and then Stars in My Pockets like Brains of Sand, my personal favorite Samuel Delaney book, mm-hmm. you know. Neuromancer comes in at number eight on that list from the Locus Awards for that year.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: I maintain, for what it's worth, people, that the Locus Awards ballads are the most interesting awards ballads in the field. And well, they're interesting for one reason. because There's it's... so much on them you can see ideas passing through the field over time. You can I see the that... amount of attention they're
1: getting. I think that's true, and I think also, I'm, and and you may know this, and I should know it, but up until a certain point, the only voters for the Locus Awards were actual Locus subscribers, am I right? Yeah, yeah. which and, is also a filter as well. Yeah, it's, it, it, but at, at some point it was opened up to where subscribers have, I think, extra votes, but, but it was opened up to general. But my point is that for a long period of time, those nominations were made by people who are serious science fiction readers. Serious enough that they want to pay money to subscribe to a magazine about science fiction, which means you actually have a pretty good self-portrait of how the field viewed itself. Um, and and one of the problems with a self-portrait like that is that when something is radically new, you may not see it as yes. radically new
0: because you it's don't true. even though I mean, if you were in that population at that time, and I say that because to some degree I was, Neuromancer wasn't that quite. You'd been reading. The sprawl stories in Omni and wherever else beforehand, hmm. the idea was beginning to to come into the field in the preceding years. So if you look in the short story nominee lists for eighty-two, three, four, you see hmm. that that you know those ideas getting prominence. It's also, and I want to watch. I want you to watch this live action segue, listeners. Okay. There's things that you see. So, for example, in 1985, for the 1980, the year 84, the best science fiction novel went to Integral Trees, which was a nice Larry Niven book with a lovely cover and all kinds of interesting things. It has a great uh, central
1: concept, I should say. that it's it actually does. Niven was good at big ideas, but big technological ideas, big engineering yep. ideas. Yep. An equally memorable
0: uh, Michael Whalen cover sat on the best fantasy novel winner, Joba: Comedy of Justice by Robert A. Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Um, a not particularly major, in my opinion, Heinlein novel And a cover which the New English Library foolishly didn't pay Michael Whalen for But paid someone to copy and oh. then said so And then he sued them and he got to put a garage on his house for <laughs> money Go, Michael Whalen. Uh, And then we come to best first novel And this is, and you're watching now the segue. Winner for the best first novel was the great Kim Stanley Robinson with The Wild Shore, a fabulous book, followed uh-huh. up by Neuromancer by William Gibson, a classic of all time, Emergency by David R. Palmer, Green Eyes by the late Lucia Shepherd, and we're all watching now, Them Bones by Howard Waldrop. Ah, and here's our segue. Here's our segue. We will, we will walk away from my temptation, as I always am tempted to, to talk about the Ace Science Fiction Specials, of 1984, which included The Wild Shore, Neuromancer, Green yes. Eyes, Them Bones, and Palimpsest by Carter Schultz and Glenn Harcourt, all of which were on the Locust first novel uh, ballot, as they should have been, along with books by Gwyneth Jones and other wonderful people, and move into the fact that this week, culminating a very sad month, I have to say, since last we spoke, mm-hmm. Howard Waldrop passed away at the beginning of this week. Just And I have to say, it hit home quite a lot. As someone who knew Howard a little bit, mm-hmm. got to publish Howard, and had worked with him, and I've loved his work for forty years.
1: I had only had one good long conversation with him at a San Antonio. It was either World Fantasy or WorldCon. I'm not sure. But again, I, I, again, I, I grew up reading the stories. Interestingly enough, "Them Bones" is not one of the things that gets discussed a lot. But the stories, and they they're in. I mean, I guess the ones that are mostly reprinted or mostly anthologized would have been the ugly chickens flying saucer rock and roll and a handful of others but the the, the thing that was off was disarming about them especially if you'd met him and, and and in the sense this is true of another writer we're going to talk about in a minute terry bisson extremely disarming talking with a drawl which makes you think how can this person possibly be as ridiculously intelligent as they are, because the Waldrop stories and the Bisson stories are extremely literary in a sense that um, that no one else was even trying to do at the time. They're sophisticated, they're ironic, they have layers on layers in them, and yet they're not, I don't think, either of them, particularly influential writers. I, I, I-, d- I think that, I don't know whether Waldrop
0: influenced other writers as much as he is collectively grouped with other writers. I mean, there's a generation of, of Texan writers who are very much linked right. from Sterling and Shiner and Martin and Waldrop and whoever, and others. Right. Uh, and they, they linked together. Um, I think there are writers that I look at who I group. I mean, I think there's an antecedence in a way with the Manly wide, wide Wellmans of the world through to the, you know, uh, follow ups from from the Andy Duncan's of the world who seem to sort of live in this same kind of space. Yeah.
1: There's a, there's a kind I of know, Americana aspect to it. There I is. Guess.
0: And the think though about how it is, there's a combination which you don't see often. Arguably one place you see it, although he's nothing like uh Waldrop, is in the work the best work of Tim Powers. Um there's a hmm. st- almost okay. What Tim Powers does, he takes odd little bits of history yeah. and assumes they must con- be connected and looks at for the story that explains them. And in some cases at times, Howard does that. Except what he he'll do is he'll take the point that so-and-so said they wanted to do something. You know, you find out that J.D. Salinger, right, actually was a social director for uh various things you know so so mm-hmm. when howard decides to write a story about the tokyo olympics that never took place because they were cancelled by hitler right i think it was uh and instead has that take place but before the story he tells which is the story of t.e lawrence on board an airship with Fats uh-huh. domino and where jerry salinger is the social organizer on board the airship, so everybody's got Social things to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's mm-hmm. three he chooses to tell. But so how it brings this deep, esoteric knowledge of history in all kinds of odd sorts of ways, mound builder history, all kinds of things, with a rather incredible fascination and love of the 1950s in the United States. I think 1950s the, the 90, popular yeah. culture is a driving love of it.
1: Well, I think that's one of the things that makes it unique is that there is this fascination with with all aspects of 50s culture, which our, our friend Jack Dan shares that fascination to some extent as well. Uh, but at the same time, there is this fascination with odd corners of history. And, and you, you could make a list of writers. You mentioned Tim Powers, Avram Davidson also was somebody who loved odd corners of history. But I need to explain myself a little. When I mentioned that how, when I say that Waldrop and, and Bisson were not influential, by that, I mean, I don't see a lot of p- r- young writers then or now deciding, I'm going to try to write a Howard Waldorf yeah. story or I'm going to write a Terry Bisson story because you can't do that because you couldn't tell what their next story was going to be from the last one you read. I think they're That's influential. True. I think they're both influential in a more important way in that they, uh, of, of that generation, and there are writers of the current generation who I would say do the thing. There are writers who gave permission for newer writers to try completely off the wall kinds of things. I mean, yeah. uh, ter- Terry had written, uh, for example, well, he's written some cr- a kind of critical space opera with things like Pirates of the Universe, but the two most famous stories that everybody quotes uh, are They're Made of Meat and Bears Discover Fire. Uh, and bear- Bears Discover Fire is a complicated, layered story. There's more to it than just that. But the, idea- the, the very concept sort of, I think, said to people, like well christopher rowe who i think is an heir said you can write your own thing and write it in your own vernacular and write it from your own background and it will be valid in other words mm-hmm. not influential in the sense that write like me but influential in the sense that you can do what i'm doing but do it in your yeah. own voice um i've I, I, I yeah. Yeah. I, I given an example of, of two writers of a later generation whose influence is the same kind of giving permission influence, are Karen Joy Fowler and Carmen Maria Machado. Both of them wrote Mm -hmm. stories which, by the standards of even, well, 10 years ago in Machado's case, um, are off the wall. They don't fit into any patterns. Uh, But writers who looked at them – oh, okay, I'll add Kelly Link to the list. Writers who looked at these writers said, I can't do that, but if they can do that, I can do my own thing in a similar way. And I think that among the short story writers of the – uh, the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, the, the Bisson and, and, and Walldroppers, are, 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 they, help, they helped open up the field to quirky voices. Yeah.
0: And, you know, if, if you want to sort of ask, like with Howard, where, where maybe for listeners, maybe you haven't read his work and you're going, well, let's say I should. Uh, in, I've seen it said about in music about bands that great creators have imperial phases, periods where they can seem to almost do no wrong. Uh-huh. And how does this period from like the mid seventies through to the beginning of the nineties, where he's just putting out story after story. And, you know, it's interesting. We talk about relative obscurity of creators. Mm. Uh, Howard Waldrop, who never made much money from his writing and famously sort of did not do so, but was being published in Playboy and Omni mm. and all these kind of places puts out a string of stories starting with like M- Mary Margaret, Road Grader, Custer's Last Jump, The Ugly Chickens, Heirs of the Perisphere, Flags, also Rock and Roll, you know, The Lions Are Asleep This Night, Do You do you Want to Dance, and dozen Tough jobs. So covering about mid-70s up to about 1990, and collected in a couple of books. I mean, the book I like to recommend the most, you can't get, Strange Things in Close-Up. So you need Night of the Cooters, and you need all about strange monsters of the recent past, and you need Howard Who. Howard Who, and yeah. And they, they will get you through. They will give you what you need to know the novels. I mean, he wrote one and a half novels. He co-wrote the Texas Israeli war. Right. And his debut novel that we mentioned to start this off, them bones really um, is not, you know, something you you, you have to read. It's also interesting to me when I think about this, how critical Omni magazine gone these many years was, Uh you know, because whether we think about it this way or not, I mean, I remember reading William Gibson in the pages of Omni when he was sketching out The Sprawl. I remember very clearly reading Howard Waldrop when he was delivering story after story to Ellen Datlow. And the first time I ever encountered uh, Terry Bisson was with his first major story um, over, the, over Flat Mountain that appeared in the, a 1990 issue of Omni. That was the story that sketched out the whole space that he was going to write in ever after. And he appeared in there a number of times. I mean, yes, he went on and was published in Asimov's and whatever else, but that was where he started. It was that sort of, that late 80s, early 90s Omni was critically important.
1: In I, think it, it, it was, his... I think uh, uh, seeing, seeing as how you're an editor yourself, I think we need, we need to recognize the value of Ellen Dadlow at Omni and the value oh. of Alice, Alice Turner at Playboy Buying these uh, because Alice Turner was a good friend of Terry's, as I recall. Uh, I was well, actually when when, yeah. when when Terry when Terry was moving. This is way back. Well, not maybe not that twenty years ago or so. Uh, I remember going to a party at Alice Turner's in New York on the eve of Terry's moving out of uh, New York to 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 go to Oakland, um, and it was clear that there was this sense of uh, community among people writing. Oddball kinds of fiction, um, and yes. uh, and I, I think that yeah, the um, the influence uh, is is probably the wrong word, but but you're right. Waldrop was um, well. I, I don't know what I was going to mention. We should probably put a footnote in here that people who are interested in that whole period of Texas fandom, and and Howard's relationship to George Martin and how they be is is documented in the early Waldrop, a collection uh, from uh, Subterranean Press that includes, it doesn't include the most important Howard Waldrop stories. It's his earliest stories. But there are a lot are of- Are you referring to Hard Starts? Hard Starts. Um, H apostrophe A-R-D, which took me a, a minute to figure out that's how Hard pronounces his own name. Do you know that people would hang up on him when they would call him?
0: Really? You know why? Yeah, because when you pick up the phone, someone goes, "Ha, I'm hard." Hard. Yeah, what's well, I remember Gardner telling stories about this happening, uh, and I, 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 choose to believe them and, and then move along. But yes, hard starts out from uh, subterranean, and I also think believe in ebook. Uh, contains
1: yeah. that, but but the, but the the, but the fiction is fascinating for all kinds of ways. But the Bradley Denton and and George Martin uh, memoirs and accounts and some of the nonfiction about what Texas fandom was like uh, in the seventies is fascinating. In, in other words, the book is valuable as a kind of historical document as well as getting a sense of how that voice evolved over time, And I'm glad it came out while he could still see it and appreciate it. And of course, George Martin was one of the driving forces behind that book as well as Bradley, of course, Bill Schaefer. It would be irresponsible
0: and insensitive of us not to note that since the Cood Street podcast last came your way, Howard Waldrop passed away, as we've said, Tom Prodom, particularly in my experience, notable for the stories he wrote for Gardner Desuart Asimovs, David J. Scarl, Fred Chappell, Terry Bisson, Emmanuel Lottom, Bertel Fork, Richard Bowes, and David Drake all passed away. Now, I knew David slightly and had read some of his mm-hmm. work, his classic Hammer Slammers, military science fiction. Uh, I'd met him through my weird shared agent. Rick Bowes, who wrote some wonderful work, um, including, I think it's called uh, There's a Hole in the City, I think he wrote, which was a wonderful, wonderful story mm-hmm. and won major awards. And uh, I encountered a couple of times and was uh, lovely and really the science which is sadder for the passing of all of them.
1: It's it's certainly true. And I, I, I do want to uh, – I'm not taking credit for something, but it's something that struck me as really odd okay. because in the last few weeks of his life, ironically, Terry Bisson got profiled in The New Yorker. He did. And he got profiled in The New Yorker mostly because of this ongoing series of little jokes he's been writing for um, – Locusts for 20 years, and he started before—actually, he he started writing these for Eileen Gunn when she was doing uh, her uh, zine, whose title is I'm I'm blanking on right now. But anyway, uh, when we were doing our long uh, series of daily podcasts during the lockdown, one of them was uh, with Terry, and we were reminiscing about uh, all sorts of things. And at the end of it, we got to the business of uh, his—this— this year in history or this day in history or whatever it's called for locusts um, and had been doing it for several years. And I said to him, you should think about putting these things together uh, in a in some kind of a book and making a kind of ersatz future history out of it. And he, he poo pooed the idea saying, I'm making this up as they go along. There's no consistency. It wouldn't make any sense. There's no point in doing it. I had a lot of fun doing it. I'm, I'm, now they're talking about doing it. Now they're going to do it, I guess. Um, oh,
0: good. Well, I mean, that would be a welcome thing. Uh, his is a voice that should not be lost from science fiction. And it's also when you talk about things that have, that he, that, that have been done. One of Terry's amongst a number of things, one of his contributions to his field, the field, is the long series of outstanding short story collections that he edited mm-hmm. for PM Press. Right, uh, that went on for a number of years, and which were really, really wonderful books. Uh, he did a, yeah, a, a terrific author, job with those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, really great books, and so worth you know remembering those as well. Um, I know that he so every every one of them included an interview, which means which tags sort of the thirteen or fourteen years right. worth of books. You know, and you look, and he's, he's talking to, he's he's publishing Kim Stanley Robinson and Eleanor Arneson and Michael Moorcock and Ursula Le Guin and Marge Piercy and John Crowley and right. Michael Blumline, all kinds of interesting people. So, a really, look, a, a wonderful man and a wonderful talent. And as is so often when you hear you know the people discussed, kind, generous people. Waldrop was famously you know, kind with his time. So, mm-hmm. so was. Was Terry very much, and so to my, to my knowledge was Rick Bowes and others. So, yeah, people are sorely missed. As we segue out of that though, and as the end, I, I was going to suggest we go through the news of the time, but maybe we won't. People can find out for that themselves. The thing that we're genuinely not going to go to in, through in any detail though is why there were shenanigans or why shenanigans were mentioned. There are shenanigans in the science fiction field just this very day, Gary, or there appeared to be and we know so little about them that we can't say much other than that they've happened. It does appear that the, that after quite a long time, the Chengdu World Science Fiction Convention has released its Hugo nomination statistics. And there are, it is fair to say, some
1: points that are poorly explained. Do you think that would be a fair statement? I think that's well, no, I don't think poorly explained. I don't think they're explained at all. I
0: underexplained. They're, they're explained not
1: explained. under they're, 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 they're mysterious. Um, And I think uh, you you use the word shenanigans, which is a wonderful word because it means either something really awful or nothing much at all. Uh, And Mm -hmm. somewhere in between these uh, are are mysteries to be solved. And some of them are mathematical mysteries. Some of them have to do with counting nominations, counting votes, and this sort of thing. But there's a huge, as we speak, and starting the day that we're recording this for the last 24 hours, a huge amount of discussion in various online forums about what this means, uh, does it bode anything for the future? Does it imply something possibly shady? Um, and I no don't one, know. No one has any clues to this at all, so we don't have anything no, don't, to say about it. I can tell you that
0: Mike Glyer posted today, I think, uh-huh. on file 770, as when looking at the ineligibility of uh, RF uh of Paul Weimer, of Ziran Jiao has said that there didn't appear to be an explanation and mentions that Dave McCarty, one of the Worldcon vice-chairs and co-head of the Hugo Awards, has said, after reviewing the constitution and the rules we must follow, the administration determined these works and persons were not eligible. And that appears at this point to be the entirety of the explanation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess we wait and we see. But it's quite interesting, and we'll get to to, to talk about this in coming episodes. We'll, we're we're going to record another episode next week. We shan't you know do any preview of that until such times as we know that it's happened.
1: It's going to happen, yes.
0: In a interesting twist, dear listeners, you will get to hear from Gary and I again within a week, anyway, because while Gary and I were in Kansas City, uh, for the uh, World Fantasy Convention being treated wonderfully well by everybody. We sat down over barbecue with uh, Scott Edelman of Eating the Fantastic, who was a kind and generous host. And we talked about nothing at all interesting, just this. And that will be out in the world for people this
1: coming week. That will be out within less than a week. So, um, and And we encourage people. I don't know if I want to encourage... I don't remember what I said, but it was enormously generous and kind of scott to uh take us to a barbecue place that apparently nobody else in kansas city knew about and one of the things that anybody who's ever been to a con anywhere knows scott will find a restaurant that nobody else knows about and that is absolutely terrific Mm.
0: he will and he did and we enjoyed ourselves and he also had this, as he will, no, no, as he's no, no doubt told his listeners, this really, really fancy bit of kit he uses to record things. That was kind of cool. If we yeah. were recording in person, I'd be going, it's still too expensive. Let's not do that. But it looked really cool. It did, yeah. Because
1: we're the poorest podcast in town, Gary. I think we probably have the lowest budget. I mean, we've, I, I, I bought this microphone and you bought your setup and we did that years ago. Um, we lose
0: money all the time. We are a lose money losing venture we pay
1: for for
0: our recording service and our hosting, but we just we're just here for your listeners, and also
1: we're really lazy. I think that's the best explanation right there. No but patreon, no- that's not us.
0: Also, it would tell you know I can tell you why I wouldn't do it, Gary. Then you'd know if they cared.
1: Why that, that that yes, I suppose you're right. Best not to ask, isn't it? We don't want to know because God knows what would happen to our statistics at the at the, at the World Common nominations if, if this is, if this got out of hand. Uh, yeah. By the way, we should, as long as we're mentioning it, we did get possibly. I we're we're not sure where any of these numbers came from, but there were a, a substantial number of people who nominated the Pood, Pood Street podcast. I've done this before. I do this once a year. Um, whatever this podcast is called. A number of people nominated us, and we're enormously appreciative of this. Always. Um, Always. We don't know how many of you there are and whether some of you are are doubled, but we love you all.
0: We do indeed. And you will see us this year, hopefully 26 times. We'll talk about 50 years ago. We'll talk about this year. We'll talk to people who've got exciting new books out. We will travel together to Scotland. We will probably not get drunk on whiskey, but we can't rule it out. It's entirely
1: a possibility. So until we until, until we come back again in only a week, possibly, hopefully, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Yep. 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 Yes.